You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 330, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Making his first appearance since 2018, I'm joined by Robbie Russell. Robbie is the creator of Oh My Z Shell, host of the Maintainable Software Podcast and CEO of Planet Argon, a software consultancy that improves existing Ruby on Rails applications and makes them more maintainable. Welcome back to the show, Robbie. Thank you so much for having me, Brittany. Absolutely. So, Robbie, let's do a little bit of a refresher. What is your developer origin story? Oh, my. Well, I could tell you how it didn't start. So, when I was uh, about five or six, I got my first computer. My dad worked in computers, and he bought me a book on how to write uh, video games on your computer. This is back in the mid-80s. I was way more interested in playing outside than playing with my friends, so that book didn't really get read very very much. And mainly, I remember going – I think about this a lot because um, when when I was a kid, my dad, was, my dad worked in hardware and technology and computers, and so I was always around computers and knew how to use them. But when it came to like sitting down to work on programming, I found it to be a very tedious and boring thing because it was always like if you write all the way it was described to me was if you write all this code from this like in these pages in this book and you run it, then you can play this video game. And I was my comprehension of that was like, well, that seems boring. Why would I want to like learn how to type exactly what's written in this book and to hit run when someone's already done that? Can I just play the video game at this point? I didn't connect to it on that level. And so and I have a series of examples of like that throughout my, my youth and through education process, you know, in high school and stuff as well, where I was always interested in using technology to do things as a tool, but I wasn't really interested in like learning how to program. It was, I always found it to be one of the most boring aspects to using a computer for whatever reason. I think there's also this illusion that being a programmer would mean that I'd be working in a cubicle in Silicon Valley where my dad worked. And I thought that would be a boring life to have at that point because I'm going to figure out my own artistic, creative way in life. Having said that, um, in my late teens, I started to, I had a, a punk uh, zine and and I would distribute them at like punk shows for all ages shows and stuff like that. And uh, around that, that was probably in like 1996, 97 era. And I wanted to put that online, so I figured out how to build some web pages to publish all that same content online because I had contributors from different writers, and so I would made a way that we could all post that online. And then I started a sticker company, and I wanted to sell stickers for punk bands and activist stickers. And uh, back then there was a lot of mail order, so I wanted like I wanted to make a way to show the stickers that I had for sale, put those on a website, and then allow people to request them. And then so I had to figure out how to do that like how do i have a form that would allow someone to fill out and select a specific sticker um a quantity and then have that somehow notify me that someone had an order in you know back then i couldn't do any credit card processing or anything like that but it was it would be there would be a process of at least getting a so my very first programming experience was literally taking and it was kind of like a guest book type of approach but it was very much for that era where someone would fill out a form and it would save some uh, details into a text file on a server. And then I would download that file off of an FTP server so that I could see if there were new orders. Usually there wasn't, but I figured that was like my first programmatic web-based type of experience. And so that kind of evolved where I was working on different types of projects for different activist projects or uh, websites for bands and trying to come up with some interesting ways to allow them to interact with people, people posting like comments and, or, 
entries on a, on a guest book or things like of that nature back then or making an order for you know a cassette tape or a cd or something like that so a lot of that was how i started getting into programming it wasn't because i was excited about programming in and of itself it was in the, the i was interested in the output what could i do with the coding like if I, if I figure out how to code this i kind of wrap my head around it f find different literature go to the library find some book and I'll learn how to do something with like Perl and cgi or something like that and so i kind of picked up these skill sets along the way to accomplish something that i was working on but it was never because i was like oh i want to become a programmer as a profession that was not i didn't know what i wanted to be professionally you know i took a couple of computer science classes i failed them because i just didn't do the work uh admittedly um, i think i did pass my Pascal class the second time I took it because I at least did the work that was involved there, but uh, it wasn't it was it never really resonated with me for whatever reason. So that's kind of how it got started, but it wasn't until a couple years, maybe four or five years into working on these different projects for different, you know, for these online projects that I had that I kind of realized like, oh, I think people might pay me to do this for their projects like they had a business problem and they wanted to put a website together and have some sort of interactivity. So I'm like, oh, I've kind of, I know how to do that. So I can maybe do that for you. So I had a couple of, you know, I picked up a couple of freelancing projects along the way. And then there's kind of a bigger story about how I was also like a tech support person for a while at a company and I built an intranet and then the, uh, in, our, in our couple couple hundred person in, um, organization there. And so that was like an internal web portal and a lot, I started building some custom tools for different departments. And we had a special team and there was a, an actual programming department at that company where you know they're working on web applications for our, our for our clients and they're like oh you're doing all this web programming type stuff kind of behind the scenes why don't you come work on our team and so i ended up switching over to a different department and actually became a programmer by you know working on in that capacity but it kind of like i kind of fumbled my way into it it wasn't intentional i never had this idea that i was like i'm going to be a programmer one day it was more like oh i can do that sure and then some opportunities popped up along the way and i was like oh i'm actually not bad at this and then you know 20 years later here i am still doing it so i love that origin story because it reminds me of the sentiment that you hear a lot nowadays where companies are saying that they're technology companies but really everybody's using technology to accomplish a goal every company is a technology company in some way and it sounds like you really took programming as a tool that you could use in order to accomplish a goal so i do have to ask before we move on are you still really into punk music very much well, I, I, a lot of punk music from that era, um, I haven't kept up with a lot of the bands that have popped up over the last couple of decades, but still a musician, just not my my area of expertise at the moment. If you quoted me with the coolest hip underground punk bands we are right at the moment, and I'm sure there's a lot of political motivations to have good punk bands right now, but I haven't immediately kept into that world. Well, that is not my next question, but I do want to hear the origin story about Planet Argon and even more so how you got into Ruby and Rails. Yeah. So, you know, and just one little segue on that, something you just mentioned there related to um, being part of like the tech industry. And, you know, I, I struggle with how we call ourselves working in tech as a general concept, I suppose, and just kind of a little side tangent of when did a plumber work with tech and not work with technology what does it mean to work in tech it feels like a very broad terminology to use in our industry that i'm like what does that mean is it, it feels to me and it feels like a weird form of gatekeeping in a weird way where we're like we're we're doing something kind of maybe perceived as being more magical or like we're doing something over here in this tech world but like 
does does a doctor not work with technology does you know like when did electricity electricity no longer be considered current technology and so it feels like a really broad weird thing and i hope that we can not that we need to put ourselves into more narrower groups necessarily but it, it just it's always that 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 language there has always kind of bothered me a little bit and it's increasingly become so over the last few years but anyways back to your main question um where did planet argon start so back in the so i think in the early 2000s i was working at that company this it was at the, you know i became a programmer at a company and uh, i think it was back in 2000 and then in 2002 uh decided I want to start working more with the open source project or open source technologies because at work we were all using like Microsoft stack. So that was back in, you know, I remember going to like the .NET launch when that became a thing. And so we were working on that, you know, in my professional day-to-day -day job, but at home I was always interested in open source tools. Like I was working with a lot of Linux tools back then and doing all my, my, my own personal stuff was PHP and Perl and things like that. And in 2002, I was like, Ooh, I, I bet I could probably get some more of these types of projects for myself and do some freelancing. So in the summer of 2002, I guess August of 2002, uh, I created uh, planet Argon as a freelancing enterprise with a, and had my partner at the time, she is a, she was a designer. And so we kind of collaborated on a bunch of projects in that early era where she would do design and I would do the backend development of those. And so that was a lot of PHP projects. And in 2003, I had a different job working at a company that worked with um, different open source technology, but primarily they're a Postgres SQL consultancy. And so I kind of got a deep dive into that world and worked with a lot of different technology stacks with Postgres. And, and in 2004, I quit my job full-time to be, to focus on planning Oregon full-time so that I could in my back of my mind thinking, oh, I'll work half as many hours as a freelancer doing this and get to spend more, that other rest of that, my time focusing on my music career, which is where I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to play music. I just want to play music and programming will be a way to help, you know, pay for that, I suppose. So, which leads into how does Ruby on Rails come into that whole picture? So late 2004, it's probably like November-ish, November 4th, I saw a job post job listing posted on, C, or on Craigslist for a local company here in Portland, Oregon called CD Baby. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but uh, Derek Sievers uh, was uh, created uh, CD Baby and he's well known in the community, at least in the, the web and tech world. And uh, I, I applied for a position to become the the very next programmer. Like he built all the infrastructure for his uh, his company, and I was applying for a PHP job there, where I would be the the next person for to ever work on that code base as a as a software developer. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna abandon this whole freelance life that I was thinking of because the idea of working at a music related company locally with open source technology and someone like Derek to be my boss sounded like a really great idea. So this is late 2004, and Around the same time, there was uh, some you know, circulation of the DHH's uh, video on using Ruby on Rails was percolating around, the, I think around the same time around on the internet. And and then, it, so we, we had talked, I had a couple of interviews with him and he uh, basically, he verbally offered me a job um, after giving me an interview in my living room. And that's because how we did it back, things like that back then. and. Uh, he said, okay, well, we'll figure, figure all the details out after the holiday break. And so at the beginning of the new year, you'll come start working over here. I was like, okay, great. So I had a couple of weeks to just focus on wrapping up some of my projects and you can't come back to the end of the, the, the new year starts. And he's like, hey, Robbie, 
crazy story. I got stuck in a blizzard and I couldn't do, you know, I couldn't do anything to go skiing as much as I wanted to on my break in Lake Tahoe. But I had a, this book called Programming Ruby and I'm obsessed with it now. And I want to use Ruby on Rails for CD Baby. And I want to basically toss out everything that we did with PHP and rewrite it on Rails. And I found a developer named Jeremy Kemp who's uh, based in San Diego that I'm gonna move to Portland to come work with me. And so if you're interested in picking up Ruby on Rails as well, I'll hire you in a few months. So the job offer kind of transformed into a situation where I didn't have that job offer, but there was kind of like this carrot there of being like, if you're interested in learning Ruby on Rails, then I will potentially offer you a job in a few months. So that's how I got introduced to Ruby on Rails. This episode is brought to you by Portway, a new Markdown Notes app developed by BonkyBong, a small indie development shop based in Portland, Oregon. When you start a new project or idea, you probably create a new Git repo for your code and get hacking on the basics. It's the perfect home for your code, but what about your content? Say hi to Portway. Portway is a collaborative Markdown app with a bunch of additional features like fields that can be added to your Markdown, an outline mode that lets you reorder everything in your document, an easy-to-use team management system, and of course, a powerful API to interact with your content. Projects you create are private by default, but if you're on the team plan, you can add members of your organization to your project and work collaboratively with them on your documents. There are some wonderful notes apps out there, and it's the go-to starting point for many of us when we need to write something down. Now take the simplicity of a notes app, make it Markdown-centric with a full-fledged API behind it, and you've got Portway. It's a spot for your team to collaborate on documentation, an area for you to plan your garden planting schedule, or use it as a headless CMS. It's your content, and it should be frictionless to write as a note, but powerful enough to integrate it wherever you need it. Over the years, the team at BonkyBong kept running into projects where something was needed to be content managed, but setting up a CMS was just overkill. They wanted to be able to write or edit some content on their iPad in a beautiful app, hit a button, and see what jet change go live. So they created that experience and loved it so much that they started using Portway to manage Portway itself. The intro project you get when you first sign up is populated from a project in their own account, and of course, all their guides are written and published from Portway. Sign up for a free 30-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting getportway.com ROR. Link is in the show notes. Now back to the show. What an incredible story. And yes, I'm definitely familiar with CD Baby. So it's really cool to hear your side of it. I do want to move on to a project that you are very well known for, and that is Oh My ZSH, which is quoted as a delightful open source community-driven framework for managing your Z shell configuration. So can you tell me the story behind the project? Yeah, so back in, I think in, in, the, in the early era of the Rails community that we had, uh, you know, there's a number of uh, people from the core uh, Ruby on Rails core team and people within the community that were, you know, we were, we were always sharing things with, you know, regards to like different ways of how we're optimizing our, you know, our, our terminal interface or how we're deploying applications or, you know, our work environments. And um, a number of people had switched away from using um, what was the time was the default shell called bash to using Z shell because there were some cool autocomplete features that it came with. And so a few people had shared some different little snippets of code with different people. And I had kind of cobbled together this big gnarly looking config file, but it made, it gave me all these cool little interaction tools and it allowed me to kind of like when I'm working in a, in an application directory on my, in my terminal, I would see that, 
the like what branch I'm in, and you know, and for forget or what have you. And there was, you know, I think even at the time there was some things related to using Subversion and and auto-completing host names on for different servers. And there's there's some really interesting little features that I had kind of compiled by using all these little snippets that I'd copy and pasted from people. And so when within my day-to-day -day work with my employees at Planet Argon, because um, you know I. Backstory is I, I didn't end up getting that job at CD Baby. I ended up deciding that I was going to keep working on my own thing and got into Ruby on Rails and then I had a blog. And all of a sudden, like a year later, I had 12 employees. So there was a little bit of, I kind of just at least tie that knot up there on that thread. But the, there was, so I, with all my Z show, I, you know, I had a number of employees and we'd be, you know, sometimes we'd be pairing at one of their desks, one of their desks. And I'd be, they'd be using bash and I'd be like trying to do something I'm like, Oh, right. I can't do that on your computer. Cause I'm using a Z shell typically. So a lot of like the little shortcuts and things that I had developed with Z shell were not there. And I'll be like, Oh, how about you consider using a Z shell? I'm like, well, I didn't really understand what it does or how it works. Or I like here, if you just copy and paste this config file, you'll, you know, it'll just work the same way that I'm doing. And then I can show you how to use it. And I had a, I had a, I remember one employee in particular who was very skeptical because he's was the kind of developer that really wanted to understand how everything kind of worked before he used it, which isn't how like my mind kind of navigates, but I, it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around that. And so at one point I was like, okay, let me see if I can at least document my configuration file to make sense. Cause I, admittedly half of it, I didn't even understand how it worked myself. So I'm like, let me document my config file. And then I was like, okay, maybe I can actually break this config file up into a couple smaller pieces. And so, I ended up making a Git repository and breaking up my config file into a series of files and created a short little like install guide. And I shared that, you know, the repository with my team and that same skeptical person installed it immediately. And then was like, Oh, this is cool. And because I packaged it up. And so that was my primary initial goal was to get the rest of the people on my team to experiment and try out using Z shell so that, I had some, you know, I could show them some of these other things that I thought would were beneficial to my day-to-day -day, um, coding exercises because there was a lot of cool little features that were already kind of baked into that config file. And so that project started back in 2000, August of 2009, so almost 11 years ago. And, you know, at the time, so what it's known for is providing people with uh, a huge collection of themes and plugins that are available so that you can kind of customize your terminal interface so that it kind of better resonates with the way you're working. So there's a lot of plugins related to, um, like there's plugins related to using Ruby and Bundler and, and Rails and um, a number of things. Like you can even control like using Spotify through it or things related to your operating system. Some neat little shortcuts that you can use. There's a lot of tooling related to Git to help you manage like using, like whether you're using GitHub's API or GitHub's um, command line interface tools or or other systems like Bitbucket or or jumping into specific JIRA tickets from your command line. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of cool little features in there. And so there's like a couple hundred, I think plugins and maybe 150-ish themes available within the project. And so, which, neither plugins or themes were there on day one when I first created and released the project. Those were things that came out of just people asking like, Oh, I want to do something kind of unique. I'm like, Oh, cool. Let's, so how do I, how would we create a concept for plugins? So in a way I, I kind of modeled the project after, you know, in a way about how you would have like maybe like rails where you have this, like, here's some core functionality and you can have these like plugins that kind of integrate and how could people, you know, build their own plugins or create their own themes so they can kind of personalize it themselves. And so that, project has 
for whatever reason or another has grown wildly beyond my expectations over the years. Um, which brings me back to one of the first reasons I started learning how to program was so that I could sell stickers on the internet. And now due to something that I created program with, with code, I now sell stickers on a daily basis to people around the world so they can put their Oh My Zeeshul sticker on their laptop or whatever. And so it's kind of come full circle on that one. That's an amazing story. And I absolutely have a sticker. And I have a very fond memory when I was learning how to code in San Francisco. I attended a Women Who Code workshop on Oh My Z Shell. And we sat there as a group and we customized our Z Shell. And it was just a lot of fun. It was so accessible. And it just was very gratifying to just even just add a little bit of color. Because when you're so frustrated when you're learning how to code, just adding some personality to the whole ecosystem just made it really exciting. That's so awesome to hear. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that happened, I think it was a couple, I didn't have like a vision for Oh My Z Show. So just, you know, maybe as a sweat, dig into this topic a little bit. Like, and so like, if you're as someone working on it, like you have an idea for a project, you know, I didn't like have this idea like, oh, I'm going to release this project. And then, you know, potentially hundreds of thousands of developers might be using this, you know, in 10 years. Like that never even remotely occurred to me. I'm like, oh, cool. Maybe five people will use this within my team. That's like, it was done day one in terms of like what I was looking to achieve but it was over a couple of years of having different people start contributing to the project and getting all these different themes and plugins the there was an inflection point where I, I didn't have a vision for the project or who the target audience necessarily was until someone proposed a pull request on github where they were they were looking to make a change that would requ would require that the users had a, a deeper knowledge of knowing how to integrate or how to work with git than um, I felt comfortable kind of like going with. And so it wasn't until that moment they're like, okay, this was kind of, I kind of felt like, okay, this is when Oh My Z Shell's installation and keeping it up to date would become more, we require more advanced knowledge of using Git. And I was like, that's where I'm going to have to stop this. Like, I'm not going to accept this pull request because I, I honestly don't think that that's going to be, make it as accessible. And I was like, I want this to be accessible in particular. And so it was through that series of conversations and that project ended up, at that point, it actually forked. And so there was another project that's still around today called Presto, which was kind of like the fork of that at that point in time. And I was like, no, I think my target audience for this project is someone that's new to working with their, or they, they might have a little bit of experience working with the terminal. Git and programming, is these are still somewhat new concepts to them. They can run a few commands and it installs, it automatically upgrades. They can mod like navigate around a configuration file, make some changes, and hopefully the, the documentation is clear enough that they can do that, that they can feel like immediately like they've just kind of leveled up some some aspect of their skill set. They're like, ooh, I personalized it. This is the way I want it. I got these plugins. Cool. I can like run these things and I feel a little bit more like a like a power super developer in some ways than I did like 10 minutes ago. And like that was very in my mind, that was a very important part. And like, even admittedly, like earlier today, I was on a comp, we had our monthly Omaze oh Shell maintainer meeting call and we were talking about this and there were some changes we were working on. And I was like, I had to bring that up again. I'm like, as long as we just keep this, this needs to be so simple to install and keep updated for the majority of people that are coming into the project. I want it to be accessible for them. And once people get really comfortable with this, they want to do some crazy and interesting and sophisticated things, you know, they don't have to keep using it or they can, Make, they can bend on my Z shell however they want to do that, but let's not 
optimize for the like the people that really want to bend it and get really advanced like let's just keep it focused on that kind of tor target audience there so if you're working on an open source project that was at least one thing that i think is helpful to help frame like who is the audience is it for everybody or is it very more of a specific audience this portion of the five by five ruby on rails podcast is brought to you by datadog do you have an app in production that is slower than you like is its performance all over the place? Sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's slow. Do you even know why? With Datadog, you will. You can troubleshoot your app's performance with Datadog's end-to-end -end tracing and in one click, correlate those Ruby traces with related logs and metrics. Use their detailed flame graphs to identify bottlenecks and latency in that app of yours. Start tracking the performance of your apps with a free trial at datadog.com slash podcast. Link will be in the show notes. If you sign up for a trial and install the agent, Datadog will even send you a free t-shirt. Thank you to Datadog for supporting the show. Well, I want to personally thank you for all the work that you've put into the project because I felt like a power user when I installed it for the first time. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And thanks for, thanks for using Omezi Shell. Absolutely. So Robbie, how did you get involved in podcasting and what is the focus of the Maintainable podcast? Well, outside of being a guest on a number of podcasts over the years, you know, the there is there is a, a, a topic in our industry. I feel like there's a lot of podcasts re that focus on what's new in technology. There's a lot of or they're talking about very specific technologies. And I think that's those are all great areas to kind of focus on. But I didn't really feel like there was enough conversations around taking care of existing software and so there, there, there's a there's one podcast in particular that I enjoy called Legacy Code Rocks, and I really in, and I've been listening to you for a couple couple of years now. And the folks behind that they had written this article about four or five years ago. Um, they're called Corgi Bytes. Uh, they're another software consultancy, and they had this blog post about where they were kind of defining. They're like, "We're menders, not makers," and and at that moment, I was like, it resonated so well with me. Where I was like, I really personally don't enjoy blank canvas projects. I love digging into existing systems, trying to understand how it, you know, it works, rolling my sleeves up and just like getting my hands dirty and, and helping to improve an existing code base and to, you know, breathe new life into it. And so thinking through that, I wanted, I, over the last couple of years, I've been kind of like, I feel like there was, I have, I'm not seeing enough of those conversations and I'm like really wanting to talk with more people in that realm because there's always people that would love to talk about the new shiny t bits of technology. And I was like, I really want to talk about this other aspect of like, let's go back and talk about the code that was written 10, 15 years ago. How do we make that better? Because I'm kind of a big advocate for being kind of fighting against the big rewrite. And which is like something that, you know, because I just don't want to see time that's spent in projects and software get kind of abandoned because some developers didn't really feel like they could figure out how to clean up a mess but like there's always this illusion that well if i had a clean canvas or i could start over like i would do it better this time i would do it right this time and i don't know what your own experience is Brittany, in, in the software world but my experience has been most of the time when people are advocating for rewrites is because they they just don't have the tooling necessarily yet or the experience to really figure out or right, how do i start making an existing system situation better because rewrites are really complicated they're very expensive and they often fail um and you drastically drastically underestimate them for sure so maintainable is a, a podcast where i interview people that are working in the industry 
that have a lot of experience on helping organizations overcome these challenges so that they can kind of breathe new life into projects and make them more you know better and more maintainable in the long run so we can we talk a lot about technical debt how you sell technical debt problems how you deal with like complicated upgrade projects or inheriting projects that where none of the original developers were there anymore you know what what are what is good documentation and ineffective in documentation and how documentation can um become stagnant over time. So the, I'm having a lot of conversations about those types of things where I think it's like the messy aspects of software development that I just don't feel like there's enough people talking about. There's plenty of good literature out there, you know, things like refactoring books and things like that, where you can get some very specific ideas about coding approaches. But a lot of the problems I think that we end up talking about is not so much the technical aspects of changing the code, it's the politics and it's the people involved in needing to sell, investing on improving things rather than just keeping making more of a mess of your existing problem um, or just pitching out the idea of like, well, let's just start over from scratch and it'll be better this time. So that's, that's, that's kind of like the core concepts and themes that come up in the maintainable software podcast. Well, I can vouch the podcast is great. We will certainly link to it in the show notes and listeners. I highly recommend that you check it out. So speaking of maintainable software, I do want to talk to you about maintainable rails applications. And I hear you have an email course for that. So can you please tell me more? Yeah, sure. So um, kind of piggybacking on the, the maintainable software podcast, uh, we I have a an email newsletter called Maintainable Rails, and that's just a sequence based thing. So whenever you sign up, it's not like everybody gets the email on the same day. It's, so it's it's a time based scheduled emails thing that I, and I, I can you know regularly every few weeks I'll add another email into the into that feed there, and it, it touches on a lot of topics related things that I think are kind of some of the messy aspects of maintaining your existing Ruby on Rails applications, things that you, you may be doing, but I'll try to remind you. Some examples of that would be, you know, checking for weird things like uh, credentials that are stored in your Git repository, or um, I, I, there's some exercises that I encourage readers to do, like writing a letter to, like if this is the last day you're ever gonna work on your software project and you needed to pass it off to someone else that you don't get to meet, you never get to have a conversation. What's what few, you know, we know that it's easy enough to kind of take over Ruby on Rails projects if we're all following conventions, but what can you tell us a little about the nuances of this particular application so that a future developer can try to make sense of it? Like, like here's a few little things you might want to be aware of. So there's a lot of exercises and, and things out like little thought challenges that I add in there. And so I'll send you a link so that could be included in the show notes, but um, it's free. Uh, I'm not trying to sell you anything. It's just trying to share some things that come up in our day-to-day world here at Planet Argon that I think would be effective for anyone that's working in, whether they're working in a consultancy or in a product company somewhere on a Ruby on Rails application. Perfect. Well, these show notes are getting awfully long. And speaking of, that concludes part one of our interview. And next week, we'll pick up with the 2020 Ruby on Rails community survey results. See you then. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening. Thank you.